Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. Thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me. Um, obviously, thanks for everyone for turning up. Um, so, as you can probably see, um, I'm Adam Henschke. I'm a, now a lecturer at the National Security College, which is down at the bottom end of ANU. Um, my background kind of fits, I guess, with some of the, the idea of this um, conversations across the creek. So, originally, I studied biology, was a research scientist for a couple of years, got interested in ethics, then did my PhD was in ethics and philosophy, and I'm now working kind of in ethics as it relates to national security, so trying to do some kind of politics, EIR, ethics mess. Um, the area that I work in in particular is in and around ethics and, and technology, um, and trying to keep a focus, being at the National Security College, trying to keep a focus on some of how some of these ethics of technology issues bear upon, and uh, I guess bared upon by national security issues. So as a little bit of background, um, on ethics, or at least the way that I treat and think of ethics. Um, I think of it as a process by which you come to an informed and reasoned justification for why something is good, obligatory, permitted, impermissible, etc. So the basic idea of ethics, as I approach it at least, is to look at the reasons that justify a given set of actions and to see whether those reasons are actually good um, and then try and work out by, by reference to good, um, try and work that out by reference to core values. So basic ideas of um, basic human rights, uh, utilitarianism, so suffering happiness, and also fairness, equality, respect, these sorts of things. So to look at those values, see how they play up into our reasons, and then we can actually see whether we have reasons, good reasons to think if something's justified, good, bad, permissible, etc. Um, some of you might be wondering how this plays a role in uh, technology and what ethics, uh, what role ethics plays in technology. I guess to start with the sceptical position, you know, technology doesn't kill people. People kill people and it's people who are bad and kind of underpinning this is this idea that um, technology and science and these sorts of things are neutral or at least morally neutral and it's only the way in which people do these things and use these things that we have ethical relevance. So I guess to kind of step into that, um, we can obviously and hopefully see that there are ways that uh, we use technology and information that are good and bad. Um, so a good example might be we use computers and computer forensics to identify criminals and stop bad things happening. So that's a good use of technology. Um, we can also use technology and say computer technologies in bad ways. Um, I remember coming across there was a computer game that I read about a couple of years ago called Rayplay in which you went around in this computer game and raped people and you got more points for more how, uh, how violent the rape was and these sorts of things. So to me, this is a paradigm example of, you know, there's no question whatsoever that this is morally problematic um, for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, underpinning this, and so again, we've got this idea, okay, we can use technology in certain ways that are good or bad, but maybe technology itself is still neutral. But technology and the way in which technology is designed affords certain behaviours, so it encourages some sets of behaviours, discourages other behaviours, um, and basically the design 
and the design features that are chosen into certain technologies make it easier to do good stuff and can make it harder to do bad stuff or vice versa. Again, if you think of something like this Rayplay game, this made it easier for people to at least think of bad stuff, uh, encourage and enable bad behaviour, these sorts of things. So the design features that go into that, they encourage and enable uh, morally relevant behaviours. And to get a little bit more specific, rather than some, some kind of general things, we can see how some of these values um, can get actively and consciously designed into technologies. So some of the stuff that I look at is to with uh, military technologies and ethics in and around design, use and application of military, tech, military technologies and to kind of fit that over just war theory um, and ethics of warfare, ethics of military practice. Um, one way in which we can see these values being coded into ethics, uh, sorry, being coded into technologies is to think of, uh, say, targeting systems in drones that prevent the killing of children. So you can have a whole bunch of complex targeting systems in and around the computers that assist in uh, making decisions with drone kill choices. And if you are unable to physically drop a bomb on someone because they're identified as a child, what you're doing there is coding in the value of either um, the innocent uh, people, uh, not legitimate military targets, or non-threatening people, uh, not legitimate military targets. So again, is this idea of particular values being coded into technologies in this sense uh, consciously. Um, to try and bring this, I guess, to some of the specific research that I'm doing or have been doing, um, I've recently been looking a little bit at uh, Internet of Things. Um, that's obviously something that's coming up and uh, probably a whole lot of research funding in and around those areas. And I think ethics plays or can play an important role, at least in some of the research around that. So the approach that I've taken in relation to the Internet of Things is to look at it and go, okay, there's one of the interesting things about the Internet of Things is it sits on two layers of ethical concern. One layer focuses on safety, human safety. So at least certain elements of the Internet of Things are real, present in the world. And if we design them badly, it can injure people, whether through allowing malicious use or just through accident. And so we favor, um, or we, we take into account this kind of value of safety. I think that's quite important. But at the same time, what makes the Internet of Things kind of challenging and interesting is it's got this informational layer as well. So we, we can look at the informational layer and say, okay, there's a bunch of values there, ethical values that we should take into account. So it might be privacy, it might be issues of informed consent, it might even be property rights over the information, the way it's distributed and who has control over that. So we've got these two layers of safety and let's say informational control, um, you know, in a very general sense. And we go, okay, this is really cool. We think that these things are important. We ought to design them in. But at some point you might actually have to make decisions between the safety layer and the informational control layer. So an example for this might be, you might have a smart house that has um, smoke alarms in it. Smoke alarms you know, will wake people up and go, cool, your house is on fire, get out. But often smoke alarms go off accidentally if you're burning the toast or, or something like that. So maybe if we have a smart house that has the smoke alarm connected to a smart TV in your smartphone, if the smoke alarm goes off, then maybe that can enable um, you know, a local fire brigade officer to activate the camera on the smart TV and activate microphones on your smartphone to first of all hear if you're setting fire to your toast or if it's actually the house that's on fire, to see if there are people at home, to see if they're up and awake or not. And this can be really useful in terms of protecting our safety. Um, you know, we make better decisions then as to whether to send the, um, the fire brigade out, how many to send out, etc. But then obviously some of you are thinking that's got some big privacy concerns as well because if you can get someone who can access the camera on the smart TV, access the microphone on the, smart, on the smartphone, 
then someone can be listening into what you do at home, they can be watching you, all these sorts of things. And a lot of this stuff has actually happened in terms of, uh, I guess, surveillance and observation of people via these smart enabled devices. So in this sense, we've now got this tension between, well, do we favour the, the safety of people or do we uh, favour the informational control of people? And in some situations, we might think it's more important to favour the safety. Other, other situations, we might think it's more important to favour the informational control. But these are at their core kind of ethical decisions about which of these values we actually hold, which of them we should hold more importantly. And some people might actually differ on that. Some people might go, look, I don't care if I burn to death. I don't want anyone watching me under any circumstances. Other people might say, I don't really care about this whole privacy thing. I'd rather not burn to death. But, um, which seems sensible, but... Exactly. <laughs> You'd rather not burn to death. Um, but then we've got these kind of risk analyses that come into this as well. Like, okay, burning to death seems really, really bad and we don't want that to happen. But what are the likelihood of that happening? Yep, as opposed to um, the likelihood of someone being able to watch us and observe us. So what we might want to do then is make the controls over the information much tighter. But that, um, so over the informational access much tighter, but that to improve and protect privacy, but that can actually undermine some of the safety features of these things. So again, we're making these decisions between the different, different values and something like the Internet of Things has these multiple layers of concern. And again, we're making decisions between them. And in theory, um, uh, practical and useful ethics can look at these areas and go, look, here are these values. Here are the values that are in play in this situation. Um, and here's how you're making these decisions, and perhaps it can be quite normative and prescriptive, this is what you ought to do in these situations. So it can be both descriptive to at least lay out to people that you are making ethical uh, value judgments between things, and to also say, if you think this is the most important value, then you ought to do this. Um, so given time, I'm happy to stop right now. I could keep on rambling for days on this. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I'll pass over to the next, uh, next talker. So thank you. Okay, hello. Um, I'm Markus Hutter. I'm professor um, for artificial intelligence in the Research School of Computer Science. And uh, I primarily work on AI. Um, so I will not talk about it. Um, because most of what I do is very technical. It's just mathematics and proving theorems. And I doubt that you want to see that. Um, but my research is about the foundations of AI, building super intelligent systems which are generically intelligent, not just solving particular tasks. And um, so these theories are at the moment mostly relevant um, in studying what these superintelligent systems might do, yeah? um, what are the limitations, and um, how can we approximate them and get towards them. And um, from a social perspective, um, it is quite useful to um, investigate um, whether um, what these systems will do in our society. Um, but th these are the really hard questions, and I will now briefly mention them. Okay, so um, who knows roughly what the technological singularity is? Okay, a couple. Okay, getting more and more. That's good, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, okay, we'll talk about that. Um, so, um, there was a nice book by Nick Bostrom, 2008, I think, about global catastrophic risks. And I mean, he really sets the threshold very high. It's human extinction or near extinction, so getting us back to the Stone Ages. And um, so it's an edited book, has several chapters, and artificial intelligence is one of it. It's a global catastrophic risk. Um, roughly speaking, 
when these robots become super intelligent, they take over and kill us all. I mean, that's one scenario. Um, maybe the worst case scenario. Um, but, well, the worst case scenario is they also kill themselves and nobody's around anymore, right? So it can be even worse. Um, but AI also provides a lot of opportunities to lower risk. Yeah? Um, I probably won't have time to talk about that, but you could ask questions about that. Um, so it's not yet decided whether AI sort of increases our risk of extinction or will decrease it. Um, okay, um, for those who don't know what the technological singularity is, um, that is the scenario where technology goes foom. So that's the informal definition. Or here's a more formal definition. Um, the singularity is a hypothetical scenario in which self-accelerating technological advances cause infinite progress in finite time. Um, so it looks like this here. Um, and um, it's usually associated with a speed explosion. So computer speed you know, gets faster and faster. Yeah. And um, because if you have faster computers, they can do more intelligent stuff, so the intelligence will explode too. <coughs> and um, this is associated with a prediction barrier. Um, roughly speaking, uh, ant has, um, or a dog has hard time to understand and predict our society, and so we will have a hard time, so the unaltered humans, to understand sort of a future superintelligence. So it is rather moot to predict, or try to predict, um, what happens after that, um, but still some people try. Um, including me, also that's only a small fraction of my time. Um, so, um, so here's a brief history, or oh, maybe I should check the time. Um, so interestingly, it were the mathematicians who primarily in the early days wrote about that, probably because they're so far removed from reality that they could dream up these strange things. Um, and they were also often also science fiction authors, and, but it really became only popular in this, um, century or millennium um, with Ray Kurzweil's book. Um, he's a futurist um, and several events have been organized and organizations have been created. And David Chalmers, he was for 10 years or so um, professor at the ANU, is still adjunct. Um, he works mostly on consciousness but also has an interest in AI and he wrote the first article about the singularity in a respected philosophical journal. And I find that pretty embarrassing for the philosophers if they are here, yeah, that it took until 2000, yeah, that somebody dared to write about it in a respected journal, or that an editor accepted such a paper. Um, well, but that's often so easy. Ideas are first crazy, and then they become more um, accepted. And I've written also a little bit about that. Otherwise, I wouldn't talk here. Um, there are also uh, several related um, developments. So um, the European Union has two years ago founded the biggest project ever with one billion euro to simulate a whole human brain within 10 years. The Americans then shortly after announced a similar program. The funding is around similar numbers, yeah. Um, a lot of money in there. Um, so this universal AI theory, that's my theory. Um, there's the, um, the, the society of immortalists who try to make humans immortal, right? It's not directly related to superintelligence. <laughs> So Aubrey de Grey, if you've heard about him, is sort of the key figure. Interestingly, he was a computer scientist. Um, transhumanism, how can we enhance humans to become cyborgs? And that's sort of Ray Kurzweil's view, that we merge with the machines. So not that they take over, um, but we gradually become them. So imagine, you know, instead of you know, looking everything up in your smartphone and even you know, doing calculations, you have a chip implanted, and you delegate all the stuff which you don't want to do um, to your external artificial brain, 
special memory part. And you know, you do that more and more, and over time, maybe at some point you realize, oh, I haven't used my biological brain for the last two years. Maybe I can switch off this small part here. Okay. <laughs> um, there are also some religious connotations, but I will not go into that. It's called the omega point theory. That was, um, yeah, 20 years ago discussed. Um, so there are various ways to get to the singularity. Um, mind uploading is sort of the easiest technologically. You just scan the human brain on a sufficiently fine scale and simulate it in a computer. Um, who does roughly know what Second Life is, this game? Okay. Um, it, it's sort of like this 3D shooter game, but instead of just shooting, you have a whole life and can do excellently everything you do in the real world. Um, I haven't played it myself, but um, I read about it. And um, so, so imagine, rather than sitting in front of your computer, you upload the brain, right? and you are in the computer, and there are many people who play, you know, this, you know, 24 hours, uh, minus some hours of sleep, <laughs> uh, and they would be happy to do that, um, to be uploaded there. So we just need to scan the human brain, and of course it rests on the hypothesis that the human brain can be simulated in a computer that is just computational, but I think that is, well, philosophers question everything, but I think it's rather unquestionable. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, they even question whether we exist, right? Yeah, so. Um, <laughs> So there's the traditional AI approach, right? We just write smart programs which are better than us and that works for chess and for some other things, but I don't th think that will fly. There's a machine learning approach and Li Xing will talk about it. It's a modern AI approach where you sort of construct an intelligent baby which then learns from experience to become intelligent. So that's much more um, plausible. Or you go even one step back and you just simulate evolution. And there's some amazing um, videos out there. So blocks, um, animals, uh, creatures which evolve towards the goal of walking or going from A to B. And I mean, although they look very primitive, they, they look very lifelike. So, so lo look them up. I forgot the name. It's, uh, I remember me later. And um, another scenario is maybe that the internet awakes, right? So we have billions of computers connected. So we surpassed the capacity of the human brain a couple of years ago, if you take all computers into account. So it's pretty amazing, the capacity of our human brain, but it's not infinite. According to reasonable estimates, I mean, this is also sort of questionable. So we, principle, have the capacity already, but by Moore's law, and I don't have time to explain that, so computation power doubles every two years, we will have, you know, your smartphone will be smarter than you by the year 2035. Um, you just need to write algorithms. Um, and, um, you know, then it will go on and go on. Um, Solomonov predicts that um, this should even accelerate because why is the doubling pattern every two years? Um, because we do the science and the engineering and we are sort of bound towards the physical reality, but it could so go on faster and faster scale of sort of infinitely many doublings. I mean, there's a limit, a physical limit when you reach compatronium, um, but I mean, that's way beyond things. Um, I can't, don't have time. Um, the only economist I know of um, is Robin Hansen, who discusses that, and he does the economic effects, and he believes that it might be possible to have sort of economic doubling, which is now every 20 years, um, you know, every month or even every week, yeah? which is rather unsustainable, but I mean, doubling the economy every generation also seems rather crazy, and it worked so far. Um, so I have a list of obstacles. Um, I think the, CV, the, the, the largest obstacle is that maybe we don't want that, um, but then, on the other hand, um, sometimes technology is hard to stop, right? If everyone still wants a better smartphone, right, then these will be produced. And as long as you don't have sort of global government or something, 
you know, some country will do it. So it's very hard uh, to, um, to stop that, um, even if we want to. Um, so let me mention one implication. There are lots of implications. But one implication is that if we are virtual, we can copy ourselves very easily. And usually, if something is cheap to copy, it loses value. Think about books, handwritten, then you know, printed, and now you just have PDFs and you delete them if you don't want them anymore, right? No value anymore. Um, so if that happens with humans, maybe the value decreases significantly. And our society is built to a large degree on that we value our human life. If this goes down, look, I go bungee jumping, I die. No problem, I have a backup at home, yeah? Or, <laughs> or why, you know, you kill me, I don't mind, you know, I have the backup at home, yeah? So, and this will have, you know, severe implications, positive and negative ones. Um, um, there's one thing I wanted to say, but I ran out of time anyway. Um, yeah, maybe then I stop here. Okay, there are some books. Ah, uh, now I know. The singularity will happen in the year 2042. If you can, uh, you can ask questions. Yes, 2042. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but it's also reasonable. <laughs> I mean, plus, mi <laughs> plus minus 10 years. Okay, um, thank you so much for um, listening to me speak today. I'm really delighted um, to join you. I'm Emmeline Taylor. I'm a senior lecturer. I'm in the School of Sociology. Um, I'm probably, most of my research focuses, or a lot of my research, sorry, focuses around surveillance and what that means to live in a surveillance society. Now, the majority of my research around this has focused explicitly on how surveillance apparatus in increasingly circulates um, children and young people. So a couple of um, books there, some shameless self-promotion. Um, so one around looking at education and the various technologies that now um, govern the, the education space, and one looking from birth to adulthood, the various different mechanisms um, that are attaching um, to young people that really monitor and track their every thought, movement, and action. But I'm not actually going to talk about that today. I'm going to talk about a different... Um, apparatus of surveillance and one that's been receiving a lot of media attention um, in recent years. Now it's been said that there is a worldwide um, uncontrolled social experiment taking place at a cost of billions of dollars and that's the introduction of police body-worn cameras. Now these are being hugely rolled out across the globe, particularly following a number of um, high profile incidents of excessive police violence and brutality um, in the US, you know, many um, fatal shootings of unarmed African Americans, um, Eric Garner, uh, Michael Brown, Walter Scott, there's countless others um, that can be added to this list. And following this, um, the images were captured on citizens' mobile phones. And this raised issues um, where it said, well, actually, we need to make sure that these incidents are being recorded um, automatically. So let's have police body-worn cameras. Huge support from Barack Obama. Um, uh, giving millions, tens of millions of dollars to ensure that police body-worn cameras are introduced in every US state. Now, that's currently being rolled out. It's a global phenomenon. Um, the UK have had police body-worn cameras since 2006 and Australia for almost a decade. And some jurisdictions in Australia, for example, Queensland, 
actually have more devices than any other police jurisdiction in the world. So this is a really huge phenomenon um, that is taking place. And in the absence of very little empirical data to actually show what the impact of these cameras are, can this resolve um, police brutality? Can this... Um, reduce use of force? Can this have a civilizing effect on police and public interactions? Now, they've largely been peddled as a panacea. As soon as we have the cameras, we don't need to worry about police brutality anymore. Um, and it's largely been suggested that body-worn cameras are the modern equivalent of the police notebook. This was the um, Queensland Police Minister back in 2014. And similar with other surveillance devices, in particular CCTV, it's often suggested that it's simply a functional equivalent of what went before. This is simply just digitizing um, processes that were already in place. But I think similar to Adam's work, um, I really question this idea that the, the technologies are neutral and that they don't have any um, additional impacts that are perhaps um, unconceived of at the time. I believe that cameras and, and technology is often invested with the ideology of those that operate them. Um, I think they have a certain agency that they can impact and they're subjectively operated in many cases. So realizing this phenomenon, um, I was really interested to know how people felt on the other side of the lens. And so with colleagues at the University of Sydney and in collaboration with the Institute of Criminology, We've interviewed 907 police detainees within 96 hours of arrest and asked them, what was your experience of the cameras? How do you feel about them? Is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? You know, what type of things is this um, raising? Now, overwhelmingly, police detainees seem to be supportive of police wearing cameras. 76% of police arrestees agree that it is a good idea for officers to wear cameras. 69% believe that police officers were less likely to use too much force whilst um, arresting an individual if they were wearing a camera. And just over half, 57%, believe that people being arrested are less likely to use violence against police wearing cameras. So it does appear to support this hypothesis that cameras have a civilizing um, effect on police-public um, interactions. But I feel there's an issue that's been left largely unresolved. The, um, the, the policy that sits around these cameras is very inconsistent globally. It's very inconsistent across Australia. And sometimes these cameras are actually being operated in the absence of any policy whatsoever. The officers are just given the camera, do with it what you will. So hugely um, problematic. Now, the main issue for me is around the ability of officers to turn the cameras on and off at will. So the level of discretion that police officers have. And I believe the fair and appropriate use of police body-worn cameras hinges on this one thing, an officer's autonomy to turn the cameras on and off. A camera that can be switched off at will, or an officer that can turn away from an incident taking place in order to obscure the camera from filming that particular interaction, cannot increase accountability or reduce poor policing practice. Now, there's, as I said, there's very, very few studies that have been done on this so far, but one, for example, in Phoenix, found that when you give police officers discretion, on average, 20% of incidents were actually recorded by the officers. So they're choosing, actively choosing, not to record um, quite important incidents. And another study found that as you, um, 
reduce officer discretion, use of force also decreases. So this is a really fundamental um, aspect of it. So the ability of officers to actually edit on the fly, I think undermines any of the um, positives that have been put forward, the, the issues that this actually solves. Now, just one example, um, there's so many. If you just go on YouTube and Google police um, cameras, um, you'll find lots of incidents where, um, yeah, problematic incidents. Now, this is one that got a lot of media attention. There's five police officers. This individual is lying on the floor. He's been twice tasered, and the police are treating him quite brutally. This is a 19-year-old pulled over, I think, for a broken taillight. The officer, midway through this interaction, says, hold up, hold up, everybody, hold up. We're red, we're recording right now. So if you guys are worried about the cameras, just wait. And you see the officer come towards the camera and turn it off, and there's no further um, footage that has been captured. So hugely problematic. The officers um, weren't um, disciplined in any way. It was seen to be a completely um, acceptable thing to happen because there wasn't a policy that they had to record. So there was two practical issues initially. One was that the battery life of these cameras actually didn't last for the duration of a typical police officer's shift of 10 hours. Now, that's now been remedied and the battery life um, has been since improved. Um, but also the amount of data that recording an entire shift um, actually creates. This is a hugely expensive development, storing you know, 10 hours per officer of footage. New South Wales Police is one of the biggest police jurisdictions in the world. Um, this is a huge costly exercise, so that's where some of the um, push towards just this um, discretion around recording came from. But following the American Civil Liberties Union, um, they argue that from an accountability perspective, the ideal policy for body-worn cameras would be for continuous recording throughout an officer's shift, eliminating any possibility that an officer could evade the recording of abuses committed on duty. And this solves four main issues. Officers forgetting to turn the camera on. Officers being taken by surprise. The activation of the camera aggravating the situation and the willful switching off to avoid capturing misconduct. Now, obviously, there's a lot of depth that sort of sits behind those, but I'll just um, press on. Now, this, the police detainees that we interviewed were very aware of these issues. They might switch off the cameras to hurt someone. Things can be manipulated. They switch them off and on and off whenever they feel like, so they only ever get one side. If they're going to be used, I think they need to be permanently on to catch the whole story. But it, where it solves some issues, it creates others. The deprofessionalization syndrome amongst police officers feeling that they don't have discretion. The privacy of victims, um, and particularly domestic violence victims, have said, you know, you, you're coming into my home, I don't want you to film um, such a private space. The privacy of police, when they're not actually responding to issues and just talking about you know, their family life, problems at home, what they had for tea, um, and operational difficulties um, in terms of you know, interacting with mental health consumers, perhaps this could actually aggravate a situation rather than placate it. Um, also, in discussions with witnesses, police informants, which you know, we should really be giving some privacy to. Okay, so... There's lots of different um, issues, I think, and, and discretion certainly isn't the only one that is raised around police body-worn cameras. There's a huge variety of different um, 
problems that it, that it brings to the table and things that perhaps really need to be dealt with before this huge investment, before the huge rollout of these cameras. Now, I just want to alert you to one of the other areas that I'm working on in terms of these cameras, and that's what's known as camera view bias. The idea that the camera is filming from the perspective of the officer, and a number of psychological studies have shown that when that is the case, you, the, the observer immediately adopts their perspective. You're put in their shoes, and so you believe their version of events. Now, a very clever psychologist has come up with this study. It'll just take me 30 seconds, and I'll just end on this. And this can be accessed on the New York Times. It's, a, it's kind of an interactive survey, but it's really interesting, I think. Okay, so it says, how threatening is the situation that the officer in this video faces? Okay, it's kind of blurry. It's literally seven seconds, I think. How threatening is that situation? I think most people would agree that like, that looks like a struggle. It looks that, you know, something's happening. It looks kind of threatening. And most people um, that fill out this survey agree. I think 75% agree it's very threatening or it's somewhat threatening. Now, think about this footage will be used in courts. This will be used as evidence um, in these situations. And here's what's actually taking place. If we can just get that to buffer. <laughs> They're just having a dance off. So, fairly innocuous behavior, but just to. <laughs> Just to really highlight there that, you know, that there's a multiplicity of issues around the reliance now on policing technologies. Okay, so I'll finish there. Thank you. So, I'm Lu Xingxie. My uh, office at the ANU is two doors down from Marcus. Um, I lead a group, uh, and we're primarily interested in doing machine learning on various kinds of social media. I would like to tell you a bit more about these. I would like to tell you two problems that we've recently solved, and hopefully that will generate some interest. So my personal interest has been that we're um, interested in doing computer science, right? But I, I'm also quite interested in um, what, like, how do digital media work and how basically people react to it, how people share, understand, and basically use digital media. Um, so the problem I'm going to talk to you about are understanding video, online videos and how they go viral, and also get the computers to understand pictures and text jointly. Um, just as a little bit of background, I'm going to start by saying, um, giving, by giving you a view of machine learning that is very operational nowadays. Um, and to tell you what machine learning is, let's start from saying that it is not machines uh, learn as we humans do and getting a university degree. It's also not building an evil bot like in the Terminators that will take out all of us. Um, that may happen according to Marcus in 30 years or less. <laughs> but um, we, have a diff yeah, we can debate about that at the end. Um, so here's a practical view of machine learning that was actually proposed in 1959. It says machine learning is a field of study that gives computers the ability to learn without being 
explicitly programmed, or in other words, like the picture below shows, it's basically a science, uh, well, computer science uh, sub-area that teaches machines to program themselves. Um, so a concrete understanding of that is uh, machines follow instructions, and there are mo like multiple ways for us to configure those sets of instructions. There are parameters or basically procedures that, ca that tell machine to do one thing or the other thing, uh, depending on what it encounters, right? So machine learning is basically <laughs> not telling the machine what, say, uh, whether, say, a particular me measurement should be what that controls where the machine go, but kind of just give machine lots of experience uh, in the sense of seeing pictures and text and then get the machine to figure out what to do itself. Here's an example. Uh, the first problem I'm going to talk about is to get machines to describe a picture with a sentiment. So um, it, this problem has been in the news uh, in the past two years quite a lot. And the state-of-the-art system from Google can write these black captions about the particular images, right? So the work in my group, we, um, we argue that the, the colored captions, like green standing for a positive sentiment and the red standing for a caption with a negative sentiment is more interesting to read for people than the black sentiment that just describes what's in the picture. And this is a rather busy diagram that describes roughly how we do this. So that's the system di diagram to do this. It has three main parts. It has, the, the first part is called, what's called a convolutional neural network that takes the image and turns it into about 4,000 dimensional uh, numerical measurements. So that's this part, roughly. Image goes in a vector, if you know what that is. Um, basically, a bunch of numbers come out that describe the image. And then the bottom part here is um, a background language model that learns what human language look like. For example, if I say um, uh, A, then it either is followed by a noun or an adjective, right? So uh, this is a language model that's learned from millions of sentences. The top part is kind of our new contribution. It's a fine-tuned, uh, what's called recurrent neural network model that understands and focuses on sentiment. And then we basically derive an intelligent way to combine these two so that it actually spits out a sentence by after seeing an image. Um, so each of these, uh, to going back to the part that machine programs itself, has a few million parameters. Um, they are shown lots of and lots of data, and they kind of learn what these parameters are. And here are some of the examples of the actual results that the machine generates, right? Um, the computer are shown the image and they generate a caption. Not only do they generate the caption, the computer also has this highlighter programmed in uh, so that it actually gives us the indication about how, how much e thinks each word uh, indicates a sentiment. For example, the top uh, picture, a great variety of fresh fruits and vegetables. And the next one, a cuddly cat. So the computer thinks cuddly is somehow positive, uh, carry a positive sentiment, and it's kind of correct. And um, so to be honest, like our computers are kind of naive and stupid computer compared to Marcus's, and they, their level of intelligence is roughly at the level of a four or five-year-old, right? When it says, oh, uh, where is that? 
a dead man doing a clever trick on a skateboard and a skate park. <laughs> um, right, it violates common sense. <laughs> yes, it's a it's prophecy. And then it says, for example, a man in a stupid head is riding on the back of a crazy horse. The man in the head and the horse are, are all right, but the, this particular man on, in the head is not riding the horse. Um, so, um, yes, machine learning can do something, um, and it's not perfect. It's an open question if we actually show this, get this bot to interact with humans, whether the like, whether it's ethical or not to actually manipulate the humans' emotions using something like that, right? Um, well, so I'll move on to the next question, where we look at um, online videos and we ask. Why do some videos become very popular, but the interest is kind of trailing down anyway? Why do some other videos is less popular overall, but uh, I mean the interest kind of sustains over more than 300 years, right? Um, just to show you some background data, so we took a large amount of YouTube videos uh, and basically uh, obtained their green curve of attention over a few years. We rank the video from the most popular to the least popular. The y-axis is the number of views they get after five days of upload, right? We can see that the most popular video already have a few million views. And then we animate this over two years of time. We can see the videos as a collective gain attention, right, by a lot. We can even overlay these five days versus two years graph and say they on average gain two orders of magnitudes of attention. Moreover, different videos, um, move differently in this attention scale, right? So the x-axis is the same, the most popular video and the least popular. The left diagram are news, so a lot of news videos are popular at five days of age because, of, because they are news, right? And we animate this and we can see over the course of two years, news videos lose popularity. This is unsurprising, it will be a problem if they don't, right? Um, this is how news works. Then we ask, oh, okay, then what's happening with these Bach concerto videos in other music, or pop music, for example? So at five days, the music videos are somewhat bottom heavy, right? And then we do the same measurement and ranking and animate this. So over two years time, music videos, they consist about a quarter of YouTube, they slowly move up, right? So music video have more reconsumption value, certainly, right? This is one reason that go up. So we're, we're happy with the observation and we would like to get the machines to explain to us why, right? This is an intelligent task that perhaps uh, we would not encounter in our daily lives, but the machine can actually reveal more insight than we do. So our mental model of the what drives popularity is as follows. Um, we take also data about how much this particular each particular video is promoted and discussed, either within YouTube or let's say, or with an external platform such as Twitter. So we have a time series about how much promotion there is, how much discussion there is elsewhere. And then each video has an internal model uh, that has a only a few parameters that captures uh, the social network effect, word of mouth spread of uh, videos, the system memory, basically how fast the YouTube, uh, the video gets forgotten, whether it's news or not news, right? And how good the content is, right? Um, and the result from the model is the observed popularity, the green curve. Okay, yes, thank you. 
Um, so, and this is how the model works. We observe the red and the green curve, and then we get the model to wiggle itself on these few parameters until it gets a decent fit. This is a real, real data example, right? And what we can learn from this model is that we basically can then derive a metric of how endogenously popular this video is and how sensitive it is to external promotion. Um, that dot on the top is a very um, promotable video, right? So it wasn't popular for the first few months and then you put some promotion and it suddenly get a few million views. On the other hand, um, there's a whole bunch of videos where it's not sensitive to external promotion, 10 to the minus five here, no. Um, and they're not endogenously very viral either. So here is an example of a teenage blogger talking about how to make pizza. It's the one example inside that cloud. No matter how much you promote it, it's not gonna help too much. Um, right, so that's that. Um, so our modest stream, so basically between what we can do right now uh, and what Marcus think will happen is science fiction. Um, <laughs> um, we would like to be able to talk like this um, square robot Taz in Interstellar. In case you haven't watched the movie, it's a robot who actually knows how to joke and knows that it's not always the best idea to be 100% honest with us humans. <laughs> Um, that's pretty much my talk, and most of the work is done by my team. We're call, we calling ourselves the Computational Media Lab. We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more. <laughs>